I remember as a young Christian, getting used to the Old Testament was a, was a rocky, kind of difficult process, just because there seemed to be so much going on. I mean, there's all these laws, all these miracles, all these historical events, all these names of kings and genealogies. It was hard to just categorize things and simplify the Old Testament. And one of the things that was helpful for me, and I hope is helpful for you, is really getting a handle on the three offices that are woven throughout the Old Testament that have to do with the life of Israel. These three offices are the office of the king, the prophet, and the priest. And that helps just to categorize some of the things that are going on. Each of these offices serves a unique function in the religious economy of Israel. Israel is a theocracy. The civil government, the religious institution, and the lives of the people are intertwined in a unique way in the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament. So when we look at each of these functions, each of these offices, we learn a couple things. The prophet is the one who speaks the words of God to the nation. The king is the one who leads the nation to worship God. And the priests are the ones who teach the law to the nation and perform its rites. So you can notice that they're all forming this civil religious uh, group of, of governance. Um, so the prophets are kind of the people, they, they go and they're, they're spokespeople for God. They're sort of like God's prosecutors. They know that God and Israel have this particular legal, formalized relationship called a covenant, and the prophets are sent by God to say, hey guys, you're not fulfilling your vows to God, right? And they rebuke priests, and they rebuke other prophets, they rebuke kings, they are directly commissioned from God. The king, on the other hand, is meant to rule and protect and provide for the nation. They're kind of this archetypical uh, father who makes sure that the affairs of his household are in order, in order towards God. And the priest is, again, a teacher. They're doing the sacrifice, the, the religious rites, and they're keeping the religious system going and ensuring its purity. At least, ideally, that's how these three are going to function, and they're, they're sort of a, a checks and balances system with one another as well. But the Old Testament does something else that's unique. It continually points toward a day when all three of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, will combine into one. They will find harmony in one person. And this person is described in various ways in the Old Testament. The branch of David, uh, the, the Messiah, the suffering servant, uh, the future king, all these things are kind of put together and we see that in Zechariah. So Zechariah's prophecies sow seeds in his day that come to full bloom in the distant future. When we do see a kingly son of David, who becomes a great high priest, who speaks the very words of God because he is in fact the word of God. He's the greater prophet than Moses. And he speaks it not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. And of course, Jesus Christ is the one who brings that fusion, that, that connection of all those three offices into one person. And in doing so, he fulfills the trajectory of the Old uh, Covenant, the Old Testament that we see through places like Zechariah and Isaiah and Daniel and all these other places. So how those different types of offices fuse together, we're going to see a glimpse of that today. This is Understanding Zechariah. The book of Zechariah speaks in symbolic terms about the reconstruction of the temple in order to get Israel to understand their present situation on a cosmic scale. Remember, Israel is 
a, a group of returned exiles from Babylon. They don't have a lot of military might, political power, or wealth. And yet there are these great promises in their scriptures of being this glorious kingdom. And they're here starting and they're laying the foundation and they pause for 16 years because they're so discouraged. And Haggai and Zechariah come in to say, hey, look, what you're doing now has cosmic implications, even though you can't see it. Even though this is the day of small things, you shouldn't despise it because God is working in your midst. And so these visions uh, that Zechariah receives are given to exhort the returned exiles to keep building trusting in the promises of God, that through their meager, weak, imperfect labor, God is accomplishing great things that's going to have a ripple effect on the rest of creation. So in Zechariah 6, we receive the final vision, and then we hear a final word to conclude the first section of his prophecies. And this final vision features four chariots that go out into the earth, and then the final word centers around the promise of a king to reign forever on David's throne, which is symbolized by the crowning of Joshua the high priest. So the two people you need to know about in this return exile community are Joshua, who's the new high priest. And if there's a high priest, that means there's going to be a reformation of the religious cultic services, the religious uh, institution. And also there's Zerubbabel, who is the governor. He's not a king, but he's foreshadowing another sovereign ruler. So Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, are prototypes of the high priest-king kind of restoration idea. And of course, Zechariah is a prophet. So you have these three offices kind of circling around, but they're going to start to coalesce together in this promise of a future branch, of a future king. Let's look at this first section, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6, where we look at a vision of the four chariots, which is the final vision in Zechariah. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dapple ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrol the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So chapter 6 opens with Zechariah's eighth and final vision, which features four chariots, one red, one black, one white, and the fourth one dappled. And they're emerging from two bronze mountains. And then an angel tells Zechariah that the four horses represent the four winds of heaven that go out from God's presence. The black and white chariots go north which is the direction of Babylon, and the dappled horses head south toward Egypt. Babylon and Egypt are two key locations in the Old Testament. Egypt is a place of Israel's original oppression. There were slaves in Egypt, and then there was the Exodus. Moses brought them out. God brought them out of slavery. And then Babylon is a place of their exile. That's the book of Daniel, where they're, because of their sin, God has kicked them out of the land, and they spend about 70 years in exile underneath the Babylonian Empire. So these are very key places. Now the red horse stays behind. Maybe that's connecting it to the man on the red horse in Zechariah's first vision. 
And here we see again the spirit working through the black and white writers to put all things at rest. Now remember, rest in the Bible refers to everything according to God's good order. And that doesn't necessarily mean the cessation of hostility. So things may be at rest in the sense that Persia is ruling over all these nations. It's creating this kind of worldwide peace. You know, when there's a super empire, they can kind of create peace between people. But Zechariah and I think the people of Israel know that that's not the peace that we're looking for. The peace we're looking for is the shalom, is the everything properly oriented toward God, toward the worship of God. And the promises of God coming to pass. So this points forward to a future day when God's enemies will no longer terrorize his people. They will no longer live under the oppression of foreign rulers. But his good and righteous rule will bring about a worldwide rest and peace. Now you'll notice that Zechariah weaves in temple language. Alistair Roberts notes that the bronze mountains may symbolize the two bronze pillars that stand at the entrance of the temple. And they represent the kingly and the priestly house. So these four chariots, which represent four winds, they emerge from the presence of God, which if you think about temple language, the presence of God sits in the most holy place, which is at the most inner, most sacred section of the temple. So if you think about that, uh, the, the, the bronze pillars are in the front of this temple, and then the winds, they emerge from God's presence out the doors of the temple, past those two bronze pillars, out into the world. It's the sense of God's spirit emerging from the temple, past the opening, bringing his rule, not only over Israel, but all the nations. God is on the move, right? God chooses to work through a tiny nation in the Middle East rather than the political powers of the day to prove a point. He works through weakness to bring about his powerful purposes. And Israel must continually and faithfully rebuild the temple despite its seeming present insignificance in light of their Oppression underneath the mighty Persian Empire, despite all that, despite them having a tiny army, God is in their midst. And if God's on their side, if God, the Lord of hosts, who owns these chariots, who patrol the world, who see everything, if he's on their side, they don't need to be afraid. They can keep building because God is the one leading the charge. That's what sets Israel apart, not their strength, not their power, not their uh, intelligence, not their wisdom even. What sets them apart is that God, Yahweh, dwells in their midst. They trust in God's promises, which sets the stage for his next word. So we have that final vision for chariots, reminding them that God is on their side with his powerful heavenly armies, working his will out into the world. And then there's a word, a word about the crown and the temple, verses 9 to 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobajah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So God shifts from symbolic visions and dreams to direct speech. Zechariah, you need to take three exiles 
to the house of Josiah, who's probably some kind of metal worker, and have him make a crown of silver and gold, and then take that crown and put it on Joshua, the high priest. Now, earlier in Zechariah 3, we learned that Joshua is a sign of God's future servant named the branch, which is a reference to the coming Messiah. Branch can also be translated sprout. A sprout is the first budding of new life, maybe after a fire, maybe after a forest is cut down and raised or there's destruction. The branch signifies that something new is going to blossom and something's going to branch out of Joshua's line uh, from from Joshua. Joshua is a uh, a sign pointing toward a future hope for Israel, signified within this one person, this future leader called the Branch. Which again, it's a reference to the Messiah, and we see that in this vision, Joshua the high priest is going to wear a kingly crown, which is going to further the sign. It's it's again, it's pointing forward that the high priest will have royal power. In other words. The role of the high priest and the role of the king are going to fuse together. The future branch will rule as both priest and king. So we, we hear more about this kingly branch as we read along, right? He's going to branch out from his place. There's a play on words there. He's going to build God's temple. He's going to bear royal honor. He's going to sit on God's throne. And this ties back to God's promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7, in which God promised David a descendant who would build his house and reign forever on the throne. And if you look back, you think, oh, who's the guy that's going to reign after David and build the temple? Solomon. And Solomon at first seems to fulfill all these promises. He, he constructs the first temple and Israel enters into a, a time of great peace and prosperity. But what happens? Solomon falls into sin and his sin leads to the eventual splitting of Israel's kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And that means that Solomon can't be the ultimate fulfillment of this promise to David. There must be a future Solomon, a future David, a greater Solomon, a greater David that will reign forever, that will not sin in the ways that his forefathers did. And he's going to be in the royal lineage of David. Now, this reference to the Council of Peace may refer to the harmony either between the Lord and this branch or the harmony between the, 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 the office of king and prophet. It's a little bit difficult to translate. But I think what we're seeing here is, again, in a shadowy, prefiguring form, in the person of Joshua, we're seeing a foretaste, these little breadcrumbs to a future day when we will see a high priest who also reigns as king. And those two will have a harmony, a council of peace between them. And again, these words teach us about the nature of prophecy. Old Testament prophecy works on two horizons. There's a near horizon and a far one that expands upon the near one. So the near fulfillment of this prophecy lies in Joshua, the high priest. He's going to oversee the rebuilding of God's house, which is the temple. And he's going to kind of start to adopt some kingly attributes. But he himself is a sign of a greater Joshua, a a Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, who serves as both high priest and king. And he doesn't just build a temporary man-made temple, but an eternal temple, an eternal house. And he reigns over an eternal kingdom, not just a temporal kingdom. So Jesus, the new Joshua, is the one who fulfills what this Joshua cannot fulfill. And obviously, even if Joshua puts on this crown, he's not the king. Darius, the Persian, is still the king over Israel. There's no established throne in Israel. There's another detail. Notice that the the crown actually stays in the temple. And it's almost as if God is saying, no one is fit yet to truly wear this crown until this branch comes. 
that, again, Joshua the high priest, although he's a sign, he's not the reality of this future king. And so this crown will not fully rest on his head. It's going to sit in the temple itself as a sign. The crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. And some commentators note that the crown in Hebrew can actually refer to a double crown. So this might be the idea of the two crowns of the high priest and the king, once again, fusing as one. Maybe. It's an interesting thought. I don't know if it's totally true, but again, something to to reflect on. But again, the whole point is, listen, not only am I going to restore the priesthood, I'm going to restore the royal lineage, and it's going to happen through the action of this one person, of this branch. And in this branch is contained the hope, not just of Israel, but the world. Because the promise of the king also includes the promise of the nations coming in to build God's temple. That's an interesting wrinkle here. And I think we see in the New Testament, what is the temple of God? It's not a physical temple. Jesus actually prophesies the destruction of the second temple in his Olivet Discourse. I think he's talking about the spiritual temple of God's people under God's king, Jesus. Peter, the apostle, refers to us as a spiritual house of living stones, 1 Peter 2, 5. That the Holy Spirit dwells among his people. And the book of Acts shows the foundation of that new temple is built by the Spirit, not human hands, under the resurrected Christ. And he is grafting Gentiles in as living stones. And these living stones will live spirit-filled lives marked by righteousness. Right? And that's really key. At Pentecost, what do we see? We see the Spirit once again descending upon a temple, but it's a temple made of people. That what we see in the New Testament is Jesus is reorienting Israel around himself. Jesus Christ is the true Israel. And if you're in Christ, you're in the true Israel, the new Israel. If you're in Christ, you are part of this new Jerusalem, not built with human hands, but with the very power of God. And we see that that's one of the big themes in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Notice, again, the fusion of the king and high priest. He is offered a sacrifice, because he's a great high priest, and then he sits down at the right hand of God, which is a throne. And he's waiting for God to subdue his enemies. That's a quotation from Psalm 110, which is about God winning victories for his anointed king. So again, this high priest is also this king that God anoints and God defeats enemies for. Christ is the great high priest, and he is the great king. And that's why Hebrews assures us in verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 15 to 16, listen to this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." We have confidence that our king who rules over all serves as our priest who understands our weaknesses. Notice that, right? We have a high priest who understands. He knows what it's like to be us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And we come to him. But where do we approach him? We approach his throne of grace. This high priest sits on the throne, just like Zechariah is foretelling. And so in Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus... He builds an eternal heavenly temple. He ascends into the heavenly places. He goes in the most holy place. He goes to this heavenly temple, of which the earthly temple is merely a shadow and a copy of. Read Hebrews about that. 
And he goes in as our perfect high priest to offer a perfect eternal sacrifice with blood that actually cleanses. And he sits in the heavenly throne, ruling not just over Israel, but over all of creation. So it actually expands. There's a cosmic reality. And so the rebuilding of the temple is just a microcosm of the work of Jesus, who's going to bring in the high priest, bring in the kingly functions, bring in the prophetic functions all into one person and accomplish a redemption and restoration that expands beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the people of Israel to all the nations of the world in which he brings them in and grafts them in to himself as the reconstituted Israel, as the one who now is reorienting all things toward himself. If you are in Christ, you are in the new Jerusalem. If you are in Christ, you are in the resurrected Israel. If you're in Christ, you have a high priest and a king who is on your side. So, do you come before the throne in confidence, letting your quest be made known? And do you believe, do you really trust these words? You're going to find the mercy and the grace to help you exactly when you need it, in the right proportion, in the right way for you. God is there for you as high priest and as king in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the motivation for prayer, that you may go to him and receive what you need when you need it.